hear me? Yeah, alright. Hands down, the coolest hologram I've ever seen. Right? I don't know we could do that, right? Big one, yeah. Man, he needs to calm down a little bit. Well, hey, uh, like uh, Pastor Wayne said, uh, my name's Kevin Wright. I am really and just pumped and, and thrilled to be here. Uh, my first time in Harrisburg. Uh, almost missed Lover's Lane on the way in. <laughs> and you put a bigger sign up, right? <laughs> the highway gets lonely after a while. You forget where you're at. You, know, you start to notice a little bit. Uh, well, hey, um, my intro here is to kind of tell you a little bit about me and, and, uh, <clears throat> and my story. But man, I'll just scrap that for a second and just brag on uh, what I've seen already. Um, You've got some amazing, you know, it, this is Thanksgiving week and we talk about being thankful. Um, I just want to remind you of, of what you have here. You have some amazing men leading you uh, in this church. Uh, I'm going to this morning. Uh, and just a brilliant man, obviously a talented man. Got to see him interact with his family, uh, with his wife, with his little girl. He's a great father. Uh, he loves this church. He loves what he does. Uh, just a solid, solid dude. Um, really just glad to spend time with him this morning. Uh, obviously, um, Brother Dwayne, and just, I was telling him how amazing that little space is outside here because he can just sit with his coffee and talk to everybody as they walk in. You can't, you can't not get greeted by uh, Brother Dwayne when you come in, right? Right? I mean, he, he just everybody knows everybody's name. Uh, obviously, just a man who loves his people and, and, and loves his church. Um, I just, yeah, I, I was challenged by you this morning, honestly, and how, how I approach this pastoring on Sunday nights. We have a very different kind of crowd and very different kind of people, even in that, in that dynamic there. The Metro East, I'm going to talk a little bit about that, but uh, just really, uh, really blessed this morning. Uh, well, hey, I, I, again, my name's Kevin Wright. I grew up in Arnold, Missouri. Uh, anybody know where Arnold's at? Just a little, okay, yeah, y'all saw the water tower when you kept driving. That's fine. Uh, that's what most people do. Uh, so I grew up in Arnold, Missouri. Uh, did not grow up in a Christian home. I am uh, the only uh, professing evangelical Christian in uh, my family, uh, in my uh, immediate family and my uh, extended family. Um, I'm kind of the, the black sheep. Who's the, the white sheep, right? Uh, but uh, so I, I met my wife in high school. Um, we were in uh, a choir class. Actually, I think we got a picture of my family up here somewhere. Is it is it back? Y'all got that? There they are. Okay, so that uh, uh, Carter, Cooper, Keller, and Carson. You have to figure that out later. And then uh, we just had uh, our, our fifth child, uh, Cohen. Uh, he's he's six weeks old, so he we haven't had family pictures taken just yet uh, for him. So you, you get to you get to miss him, but. Uh, so I met my wife when we were in high school. Um, we, we started dating there. We, we got married when we were both seniors at Mizzou. Go Tigers. Uh, we started our family. Uh, so here's what happened. We started our family actually in Missouri. We, we told parents, hey, uh, we're having a baby. And then we told them two weeks later, hey, we're moving to Florida. Right? And so that was terrible, as you can imagine, right? Grandparents finding out their first grandbaby's coming, and then we're taking them to Florida. Um, so we did that. We went on staff, uh, sunny South Florida, at a church called Sheridan Hills Baptist Church, um, where we spent seven years there, right? Uh, just suffering for Jesus in sunny South Florida, right? But uh, I, I met Mark Homschult there, who's been my, my mentor ever since, really, 2007, um, we started spending lots of time together. Crazy. I, I, as I was driving down here, I thought, man, I wonder if this is the church that Mark pastored in Harrisburg. And I get here, I find out that it is. Just uh, He's incredibly important to me. So it's a, a great blessing uh, to, to have him in my life. So um, we're down there, um, and God really began to challenge me 
in 2007 when uh, Mark's son-in-law, Noah Oldham, came and spent a year there preparing to plant a church in uh, South City in St. Louis. Uh, and Noah came, and, and before Noah came, I was uh, I was kind of a, doing the youth pastor thing, doing the worship leader thing, pretty content with the four walls, right? And, and I, I should say this too, another thing that has shocked and amazed me and blessed me this morning is the stories that I'm hearing about what Dorisville is doing in this community, right? The people who are being served, right? The, the, the church that is taking the gospel where it isn't, right? And serving people. And, and telling them about Jesus, like, y'all might think that's just like normal thing that, that you're supposed to do church, and you're right. But it just doesn't happen everywhere. Right? What's happening here, the stories that, 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 that David and Wayne are telling me this morning about people who've been served, this is what I'm praying for God to do in our church over the next 10 years. I'm asking God for the same thing that he's already doing here. How amazing is that? That's awesome. All right, that's awesome. I lost my place. Where was I? Anyway. So 2007, a guy I know older comes down, and I'm content with the four walls, really really glad to just be drawing the paycheck, doing the ministry, and, and Noah starts talking about he's going to plant a church in South City, and I'm like, I don't even know what, what church planting is, I can't plant anything, right, I uh, didn't grow up on a farm, didn't do anything, what is this, you know, and so uh, Noah just, just starts giving me his heart and his vision for what he wants to do, and God just started wrecking me, I mean, just tearing me up, man, God, are you calling me to that? So a year later, 2008, Noah leaps with his wife and says, we're going to do this. And I'm like, man, I want to do it. I want to do it. But what it meant at that time was taking my family of almost four at that time, um, committing to raising a salary, going somewhere where there was no promise of a paycheck, and just hoping that it would work out. Right? And I, I just wasn't there at that time. I wanted to do it. I didn't feel like God was calling me and giving me that release to, to go. So I spent three more years in South Florida uh, building a youth ministry and a college ministry, which really at that time when I kind of took that, there were 15 kids. And by the time we left, man, God had just done such amazing things. There were 300 kids coming every every Sunday, every Wednesday, and kids are getting saved, and people are being discipled. And I, everybody thought that I was a fool to leave that behind. But I knew that it was time. And I knew that God had called me. And I knew that it was, it was time to go no matter what that meant. So we committed to, to raising the salary. And we committed to just, just trusting that God would provide where he was clearly speaking where we were supposed to go. So December of 2011, uh, we landed, right? We landed uh, in St. Louis. And uh, we launched. And we spent about uh, uh, you know, maybe nine months a meeting in a, in a core group of about 35 people, and we, we launched August 8th Metro East, September 9th of 2012. When we launched, we were meeting in, uh, we call them gospel communities, they're basically community groups, uh, maybe small groups might be the term that you, uh, that you hear. Uh, so we meet in homes, we're meeting in one gospel community in a home uh, with about 35 people, and here we are, just celebrated a year uh, uh, back September 9th. Uh, we're meeting in five gospel communities throughout the Metro East region, over 100 people meeting in those, uh, and, and God's just blessed, man. I mean, it's just been an amazing one year uh, of ministry, so much confirmation, so much faithfulness on the part of, of His people and on the part of God Himself. Uh, it's just been awesome. If you want to ask me what I'm thankful for this morning, it's been that. It's been God's faithfulness every step of the way. 
so really excited about that. Uh, you know, normally when I uh, travel in other churches and I'm given the freedom to preach on whatever I want to preach about, uh, I generally um, preach about the necessity of church planting, uh, how God's called the church uh, to continually be multiplying, taking the gospel to places where it isn't. Um, and, you know, as I was kind of working through that a few weeks ago, I just felt undeniably that I should not do that this morning. I didn't know why. Um, God was leading me to another text, another topic, another thing completely. And I'd be here this morning, and I know why God didn't want me to talk about that. Y'all know what mission is. You, you know what, what God's called you to do because you're doing it, right? You're taking the gospel where it isn't. I'm encouraged by that, so encouraged by that. So I know that that's what's going on. So I was looking through a text a couple weeks ago. Preparing to kind of preach about church plenty, could shake this feeling we need to preach Hebrews 12. So if you got a Bible right where you're at, grab Hebrews 12. God will be calling us this morning uh, to endure in the gospel. Uh, I want to preach through really the first half of Hebrews 12. We're going to go about to verse 13. Pray for three things. Uh, that God would, one, teach us what it means to endure in the gospel. Right. The two, uh, that he would open up our eyes to what's keeping us from enduring in the gospel. Uh, and three, that he would empower us to endure in the gospel. That's what, that's what I want God, God to do this morning. So I'm going to stop for a minute. We're going to pray and we're going to do some work in this text. All right, pray with me. Jesus, uh, we're thankful for so much. Uh, God, I'm thankful for the just the, the warm greeting by all of these people this morning. Uh, God, I'm thankful for the gospel ministry here in, in Harrisburg, this church. God, I'm asking you this morning. Lord, beyond what I know, I have no idea why, why it is that you called me so clearly to, to open this text and preach it this morning. But God, I'm asking that you would teach us what it means to endure, God, in the gospel. God, that you would uh, open our eyes, that you would just reveal to us and, and convict us of those things that are standing in the way that need to be removed. God, what is keeping us from enduring in your gospel. And God, as you begin to do that work in our hearts, as you begin to convict us and change us, God, to call us out and send us in and all of those things, God, would you empower us to endure in the gospel that we know without you, we can do nothing. But God, we know that with you, that nothing is impossible. So Jesus, I ask that you would do that in our hearts this morning. God, would there be change? Would there be conviction? Would there be repentance? God, would there be joy in your word this morning? In your name we pray. Amen. Now, uh, before we get into Hebrews 12, I want to very quickly kind of summarize Hebrews 11, right? Uh, which, if you if you grew up in the church, if you know your Bible real well, uh, you might remember that as the, the Hall of Faith chapter, right? Uh, if you don't know your Bible, if you didn't grow up in church, if you're new to the faith, man, hallelujah, that's awesome. We'll get you there. Don't don't be intimidated by that, right? But we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 11 just uh, for a second. I'm going to break this down. The author of Hebrews begins by saying this, uh, verse 1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation, and by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So the author's teaching these people that he's talking to, he's teaching them what faith is, or, or maybe better, he's reminding them what, what faith is. Right, we're going to see why here in chapter 11. The author kind of goes down and he begins to cite all of these examples from the Old Testament. Uh, verse 4 says, By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice 
And verse 5, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And then verse 7, by faith, Noah constructed an ark for the saving of his household. Then he talks about Abraham, that Abraham by faith obeyed. And Sarah, that Sarah by faith herself received the power to conceive. And Isaac by faith invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. And Jacob by faith when dying blessed each of the sons of Joseph. And by faith Joseph at the end of his life made mention of the exodus of the Israelites. Gave directions concerning his bones. And he cites several more examples after this. He's building this argument. In verse 39, he concludes by saying this, And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Their faith looked toward Jesus, the Messiah, through whom God would reconcile sinners back to himself. So by faith, these people endured, and they prospered, and they lived in obedience. But he tells us that these people didn't receive what was promised. This means that they didn't know the gospel completely. Rather, they had an incomplete view of the gospel because Jesus was yet to come. But still, these men and women were trusting in the gospel. They were enduring and trusting in Jesus who would come. That God would bring His Messiah. Their faith looked toward Jesus, the coming Messiah, through whom God would reconcile sinners back to Himself. This is where we pick up chapter 12. We'll give just a little background here on chapter 12 before we take apart the text. Hebrews is really a, uh, it's a sermon, right? Uh, some people call it a sermonic letter. We don't know the, the name of the man who wrote it. Uh, some would say it would, would, would be Paul. A lot of people would say it would not be Paul. It's very different from a lot of Paul's writings. We gather some key information about the, the, the author of Hebrews uh, if we read it carefully. Number one, he knows and understands the Old Testament really well. He quotes it over and over again. He just builds this case, right? Number two, uh, because of that, he's almost certainly a Jewish Christian. And number three, he's a pastor writing to his people. He's a preacher. He knows his people. He loves his people. Number four, he's a dynamic, skilled communicator, an orator, a writer. He's passionate for the gospel, passionate for his people. And like any good preacher, he knows both of those things equally well. That's what we know about the man writing. Now, what about the, the people he's writing to? These are Jewish Christians living in Rome between 60 and 70 A.D. These people are hurting. They're hurting. They're struggling to follow Jesus in the face of persecution. Just 10 years prior to this being written, a Roman emperor named Claudius just kicked all the Jews out of Rome. Right? He said, you all have to leave. He took their homes, he took their things, and he just sent them out. They've all endured this. They all know what that felt like. And then, as if that weren't enough, right after that, right around the time that this preacher is sending this letter, another Roman emperor named Nero is murdering and torturing Christians in Rome. We're not talking about a few here and there. We're talking about thousands we're talking about near genocide of Christians. Nero would ultimately line the long roads of Rome with crucified Christians for miles and miles and miles. And he only stopped because they literally ran out of wood for the crosses. That's what these people are enduring. That's what these people are living through. They're hurting. They're drifting. They're losing sight of Jesus. The picture of him is becoming blurry. They need to be brought back. They need to be reminded 
this gospel they've given their lives to. The author spends the first ten chapters making the argument that Jesus is better than all of the things that they left behind. He's better than the law. He's better than the angels. He's better than the, the chief priests and the scribes and all of these Jewish believers who came up in that, put their faith in for most of their lives, saying, reminding them all of those things. He is better than these things. And then in uh, chapter 10, verse 23, he says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. He's saying, hold fast. Don't let go. Endure. And then in chapter 11, he reminds them of the reality that their faith is no longer in the law. It's now in the gospel of Jesus. We come to chapter 12, and our preacher wants to communicate one big idea to his people here. Endure your crisis because Jesus endured the cross. Endure your crisis because Jesus has endured the cross. He's so encouraged to see this big, wouldn't awesome cross up here, right? You may walk in here every week and it's just kind of there, right? You see it. This reminds us of what Jesus has done. This reminds us of what fuels our ministry, what propels us through life. It is the gospel. That this was necessary for sin to be conquered. Right? That's what he's reminding them of here. Now, like any great Hebrew preacher in the first century, really any good preacher is going to communicate the point that God's given him to communicate in as many ways as he possibly can. And so he uses both a metaphor and he uses an analogy. I want to start with the metaphor, starting in Hebrews 12, verse 1. All that was introduction and free. Now we start where you have to pay for it, right? It's just kidding. It's only take three or four hours to be out here again. Chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I want to just kind of take this part. Phrase by phrase. First of all, he says, therefore, right? I'm not going to use that corny preacher joke that you all know, right, about the therefore thing. He says, therefore, in light of all who have gone before us and the Savior who saved us, all that, that stuff that I said, now, therefore, this is how we move forward. And he talks about the great cloud, that since we're surrounded by so great cloud, a great cloud of witnesses, now you might read that verse and get this middle picture of, of us running the race and being looked at from the stands by Abraham and Isaac and all of these people. And that's not really what the author's trying to communicate here. It's not so much that they look at us, it's so much that we look to them for encouragement. That these people have endured in the gospel. That they finished the race. These Jewish believers that he's speaking to, they need to hear this truth. And then he says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. If you're a note taker, this is the first point you write down. To run the race well, some things need to be laid aside. Some things need to be rejected. These, these people are struggling. I mean, they're, they're struggling to follow Jesus because of their cultural situations. He said, listen, it's not just about that. Let's talk about what's going on in your life. 
Let's talk about what needs to be rejected. Uh, at RSK, we, we use this kind of language, this taxonomy of, re of receive, reject, redeem. It's kind of a way that we teach about culture and engage with culture and interact with culture. We have a lot of people who are coming uh, either out of the church, they were raised in the church, burned by the church, hadn't been to church in 10 years, so they've got this crazy idea of the church, they've run to the world, and somehow they land on our doorstep and they've got crazy mixed-up ideas about everything, right? And we've got to correct those things. And so we use these kind of examples. There are things within culture that can be received. Right? And that's not necessarily that come from the church, but things from the culture, from the secular world that can be received. An example, uh, a secular marketplace research firm does some solid research, publishes their findings that indicate that 90% of, uh, of the time, if a man chooses to follow Jesus, his entire family will then follow suit. Right? Now that comes from the secular world. We would take that as a church. We would receive that information and say, okay, let's reach men. Not even one amen from the guys. Right? <laughs> right? We, would, we would receive that information. That would be a good example of receiving that. Now, there are also things within the culture that uh, we can redeem. A good example of this um, at Elder's Gate, we have very intentionally redeemed the idea, the concept of the party. Right now, our, our culture, the world, however you want to refer to it, uh, would, would paint a certain picture of what a good party looks like, right? Lots of drunken debauchery and commandment breaking all over the place, right? We, we want to redeem that. We don't feel like that's the party, right? And so so we, we, we do it differently. We, we, rather than look at that and say, well, then all partying, that whole concept is just to be rejected. It's garbage. No, we've chosen to redeem that concept, to celebrate what God's doing. Right, so we, we've got a lot to celebrate, a lot to be thankful for, especially in the context of a gospel community. Everybody's having babies, right? Uh, we we're adding eight babies to the nursery just in the next, like, eight months at, at August Gate. This tiny little church plant, everybody's having babies. So, you had a baby? Let's party. Right, you got a new job? Let's party. Right, we, do, we, we, we meet in our gospel community every Wednesday, and almost every Wednesday, it's a party. Right, there's, there's 20 of us, there's sometimes 25, 30 of us. Somebody's got a reason to party. Right? You got a new job, we're partying, we're celebrating. Is it, is, is it your birthday? Party. Right? That's an easy one. You know, it's a softball. Right now you're standing here, you're getting the feeling uh, that my life as a church player is one, one big party. It's not. Uh, but truthfully, we've chosen to redeem that concept of a good party. And this is how we redeem it. Not just by party, but inviting our lost friends into that. Right? Saying, hey, there's a party at my house this week. I don't have to say. There happens to be 25 people from my church coming to it. Or we invite lost people into that. We make them a part of that community, a part of that celebration. And then there are things, as our Hebrew preachers talk about here, that just need to be rejected. Things that cannot be received. Things that cannot be redeemed. Anything that the Bible calls sin is to be rejected. Blatant sin needs to be rejected. Things that have proven to be unredeemable in your life, right? They continually cause you to take your focus away from Jesus. Those things need to be rejected. This is what our preacher is addressing with his people. He's imploring them, lay aside, reject those things. They have close clinging sin. Right? He said that sin that clings closely. When combined with the persecution that they're facing, it's causing them to turn back towards sin and away from Jesus. They cling to sin, things get hard, and all of a sudden the picture of Jesus gets blurry. Does that sting a little bit? Because I could say there have been times in my life that would sting a lot. 
When things get hard, I've got close clinging sin, and the picture Jesus begins to get blurry. He says, lay it aside, reject it. And he says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. This is the metaphor. This is where he begins to talk about the race. Right, again, if you're a note taker, write this down. Life as a follower of Christ is a marathon. It's not a sprint. See, sprinters don't need to be encouraged to run with endurance. Right? Nobody stands next to the to the hundred yard dash guys in the Olympics and say, "All right, man, this is gonna be a long one." You all right? Watch your breathing. Be hydrated. No, it's over. Like that, sprinters don't need to be encouraged to run with endurance. That's that's the heart of the metaphor that our dynamic, skilled Hebrew preacher here is pleading with his friends not to give up, not to stop and turn around, but to push through the pain, the doubt, and finish this race. And then he says, looking to Jesus. It doesn't just say finish strong. It says looking to Jesus. Now, um, I'm not what you would really call an avid runner. Uh, I do enjoy running. I go through seasons. Um, usually a season of running for me is brought on by a long, hard look in the mirror and uh, a resolution to either get in shape or never look in the mirror again, right? And, and you, you realize quickly that's not going to happen, and so you, you decide to, to do something. So I've, I've run a few races. Uh, this, this last one in late August uh, of this year is called the Race for Refuge uh, in South St. Louis, benefiting uh, uh, an organization that, that works with girls who have been, been trafficked in the city. Um, so, I, I, you know, I trained for three or four months. I showed up at 8 a.m., an hour early, ready to enjoy the cool morning weather. And I show up, and it's 95 degrees outside. At the end of August, right, uh, it's 95 degrees outside. And uh, I already looked like I'd run the race before the race started. Right? It was so uh, just disgusting and sweaty. So the race starts. Um, I'm keeping a good pace. Um, I'm remembering my breathing. I'm trying you know, not to pass out. Uh, I've got my earbuds in, right? I've got my little iPod clipped on. I've got my earbuds in. I'm listening to the same playlist that I've been listening to uh, for months while I trained for this race. And, I, I, you know, you can call me weird. I'm running, and I'm singing at the top of my lungs, right? Outdoors, Tower Grove Park. There's a 1,000 people in this race. I don't care, right? I'm just, I'm, I'm doing this, and I'm singing really loud. That just, it helps me to endure uh, in, in the race, right? I had done all of my training indoors on my treadmill, because it's the middle of summer, it's hot outside. This is the first time that I've been out, right? It's the first time I've been out running in this heat. Uh, I'm freaking people out, because I'm singing at the top of my lungs, running by them. Uh, you know, and I know, if you're a runner and you're thinking, man, this guy's really weak, you are absolutely correct, right? I'm not going to argue with that. Second Corinthians 12, 9, his power's made perfect in my weaknesses. I'm good, right? I'm totally good with it. Uh, so anyway, I'm just dying for the finish line. I hit about the two-mile mark, and I'm just like, I'm dying for the finish line. This is only like 3.1 miles, but I'm still dying for the finish line. For that last mile, I have no real idea where it's at. No real idea where the finish line is. I'm thinking I should have already passed it by the way I'm feeling. So the author of Hebrews tells us here that in this race of endurance, this, this race of faith, we can always see the finish line. That it's not hidden. That we're not these struggling people in the second mile just hoping that the third mile is going to be easier. That's not how that works. He says we can always 
see the finish line, see to run well, we need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus who stands at the finish line. And let me explain this for you. The image isn't of him at the finish line just to cheer you on in your race. Like that was my wife and kids at the at the finish line, right? I get to the end of the race and I'm sweaty and disgusting. I can barely walk and my, my wife looks all pretty and cute. And my kids are like, hey, daddy, daddy, can we go to ice cream, right? They're totally fine. I'm like, no, we can't go to ice cream. I'm about to pass out, right? But that's not the image of Jesus at the end of the finish line because Jesus has run the race already. He's not standing there just waiting for you. He's standing there saying, come on, you win. Because I won. I've already won the race. He's running. See, this life that we live for God's glory and this ministry of reconciliation that God has given us to point people toward Him. Jesus lived all that. He did all that completely and fully. He endured the cross. We can endure the crisis. And then our preacher calls Him the founder and perfecter of our faith. This faith that dominates that discussion in chapter 11 is founded, it's initiated by Jesus. And he makes it perfect by his death on the cross. And he says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. And that word endure, it means literally to remain or to stay. Everything that Jesus accomplished on, on our behalf at the cross was accomplished because he chose to endure. He chose to remain. He chose to stay at the cross. And he did this because he looked beyond the circumstances of that event and he found joy in saving sinners like you and like me. He found joy in the Father's perfect will and he found joy in conquering the grave and undoing the bondage of sin. Joy in defeating Satan once and for all. He endured the cross for the joy of giving real hope and real salvation as we endure the crisis. And it says he despised the shame. This word uh, despising here, uh, it's a Greek word called uh, it's kataphroneo. Right? It means to treat something as insignificant, valueless, or of little consequence. Now, please don't hear me explaining a Greek word and start tuning out. Right? Uh, I don't speak Greek. I'm not an Ivy League scholar. Uh, I just study my Bible as best as God allows me to. This isn't some incidental passing Greek word. I'm not trying to show you that I'm smart. Believe me, I'm not. I'm married to the smart one, right? Uh, but, but I'm not, right? Here's the deal. This Greek word completely reoriented my understanding of this verse. It's powerful. We need to see what's really being said here by this preacher. So we often speak how shameful the cross was. And people in that culture only spoke of the cross with shame. In fact, it was so shameful it was not to be spoken about in civilized conversation. It's reserved for slaves and for criminals. So shameful, the Jewish people wouldn't even allow it to continue through the Passover. The cross had to come down. Widely considered to be the most gruesome method of torture ever devised by the Romans. And while the whole crowd looked on Jesus as shameful, hanging on the cross, it says Jesus despised that shame. Better said, he saw that shame as insignificant. He saw that shame as of no value, of no consequence at all. See, while the Jews of the crowd looked on him in shame, and while the Romans looked on him in pity for the shame that he was enduring among his own people, and while his mother and the disciples who were present for the crucifixion are mourning for the shame that their Messiah and their Redeemer is enduring, their Christ 
Oh, the shame, the shame. There's one person present for the crucifixion who saw no shame in what was happening to him. That's Jesus. Because he looked past the immediate circumstances and took joy in being able to say, It is finished. Call it shameful all you want. It's finished. It's finished. Jesus endured the cross. He despised the shame we can endure because he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It's finished. The victory is his. Now, in verse 3, the preacher kind of changes course here. He turns away from that metaphor, that race metaphor, and he starts building this analogy uh, to kind of contrast the discipline that a parent gives to a child with the discipline that God gives his children. Right? I I'm just curious, how many parents we got in the room? So we just put the hands high. I'm just curious, just curious, curious. All right. Some people are like, I don't even want them to know. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, verse 3 says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not, not grow weary or faint hearted. So the preacher keeps this theme of endurance going through this analogy and encourages us not to grow weary, not to grow faint hearted, but to look to Jesus who has endured this hostility from sinners. Verse 4 In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So we get a little look into what this persecution looks like. Right? They're seeing friends and family. Persecuted, They're seeing them tortured and murdered. These, these, this particular group of people have not yet endured that level of physical suffering. Verse 5. It says, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. We see our preacher does know the Old Testament. He's quoting it freely. That's Proverbs 3, 11 and 12 right there. He's saying, have you forgotten that you are a son? Have you forgotten that you have a heavenly Father? And that He has encouraged you? That He has saved you? This hardship, this discipline? It's proof of the unending love of God. Who's received you. Verse 7. Says it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline. In which all have participated. Then you are illegitimate children. And not sons. He's saying look at this. Discipline that you're receiving. This, all of this that you're going through, God is disciplining you and it legitimizes the fact that you are His son, His daughter, that you belong to Him. He just turns the whole direction and says, well, listen, if you don't get this, look at it this way. Right, he's your father. Verse 9. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time. They disciplined us for a short time. As it seemed best to them that He disciplines us for our good. That we may share His holiness. Now, a few comments here about what this preacher has to say. Number one, inevitably, uh, there's some, maybe many in a room this size, uh, who have been improperly disciplined by a parent. Not treated as a son or daughter, uh, but maybe as a nuisance. So you might read that and think, well, I didn't respect my dad when he disciplined me, so this, this doesn't apply to me. Hold on. We need to remember here that this preacher is writing to a given people in a given place in a given time. 
Right? For the Hebrews, it was customary for the father to carry the disciplinary role at all times and to have unfailing respect from his children. And though this may not be true in, uh, of us in our culture in many places, these verses are still for us because as we struggle, as purpose with, within our hearts uh, to proceed from here with a gospel-centered endurance, like it, as, we, as we are gaining that purpose today to proceed from this building with a, a, an endurance motivated by the gospel, we're reminded that God is our Father and His love includes discipline as it should. Verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The discipline's painful, it's not pleasant. Right? It really can't be. Uh, it doesn't cause some measure of pain, some measure of discomfort, it's not discipline. But God is always purposeful in the way that He disciplines us. These are a few things that I think apply from the text here. Uh, and, and, and parents, listen, I saw so many hands come up. As a parent of five, I'm, I'm pretty passionate about the whole parenting thing, right? Uh, I've, I've chosen it willingly five times. Um, we enjoy our children. Uh, my, my second favorite thing, uh, my second favorite role in life, right next to being a, a, a husband to my amazing wife, who homeschools our five children, by the way. We can call it okay, right? Uh, uh, is, is being next to that is being a dad to to my four boys and my little princess. This is what God's discipline of us looks like. Number one, it's, it's always out of love. And God disciplines us out of love. Verse six: The Lord disciplines the one He loves. Praise God that He makes things so incredibly clear. The Lord disciplines the one He loves. So as you're struggling, as things are hard, you walk in here with all that baggage, like me and God. Why are you doing this to me? Trust that He loves you. He disciplines the ones that He loves. He never out of an unrighteous anger. He never disciplines us because He's unrighteously angry with us. It's just simple convenience. He doesn't discipline us because that's just the easiest things, thing to do. The, the way that this challenges me as a parent, right? All of my, my, my oldest is seven. He's about to turn eight in a couple weeks. So it's just madness in my house at all times, right? Someone is always... On the verge of disobeying or disobeying. Right? That's just how it is. And so I have had to learn over these past eight years when the need for discipline is there and, you know, you're just so angry because they caught the carpet on fire. Sometimes you just have to step back and say, I will not discipline the way, in a way that God doesn't discipline me. You have to come back to it. Well, you can discipline out of love. Second way that God disciplines us, always for our good. It's always for our good. Verse 10, He disciplines us for our good. It's pretty clear, again. He disciplines us for our good, never arbitrarily. Right? Never just offhand. The way that's challenged me as a parent is to always make sure my kids know why the discipline is happening. Right? I grew up in a house where if I, if I was goofing off or messing up, my dad just walked behind me and, you know, you just, you, you kind of always, if he was in the room, you're just kind of always like this, you know? You're just waiting for the, for the, for the thing. I never really knew, you know? It's, what was I doing, right? I want to make sure my kids know why they're, why they're being disciplined, right? How, and, and also how it ultimately leads to good for them, to have the conversation with them. Hey, listen, this is how this leads to your good. This is how this is for your good, so that they understand. God's discipline is intended to make us more like Jesus. 
Verse 10 says that we may share in His holiness, always with the high purpose of conforming us to the image of His Son. There's purpose in that pain, that suffering, that hardship. If God's discipline of us is gospel-motivated, if it's, if it's to conform us to the image of our Son, then our discipline for our kids should be the same. If you don't have kids, if you're like, okay, this whole last five minutes and I've been three, listen, someday, someday you're going to wish you paid attention. Right? Listen, this is for you. If God's discipline of us and, and of, our, of us is that way, then our discipline of our kids should be the same. So why discipline? Why the pain? Why, why does he choose to do that? Why does he choose to use those things, to use hardship, to use hard circumstances to do those things in us? Well, first, God is able to and often does redeem those hardships and use them to accomplish good. So many of you, I'm sure, hear that and think, I have got an example for you right now. You've lived that, right? I told you uh, that I, I grew up in a non-Christian home. Uh, not a nominal, just not anything, right? None of them would say they were atheists. None of them would say they were any other religion. Uh, maybe, maybe Christian by default, but there just was no gospel at all. I never heard the name Jesus until I was five years old, right? Um, and some people came into my neighborhood. Uh, they ran a bus ministry, right? I don't even know what that is anymore, right? They ran a bus ministry. They came into my neighborhood. I lived in a super, super poor, low-class neighbor, uh, neighborhood in uh, Jefferson County, uh, Missouri, not Illinois. Uh, and they came in, and they, they told me the gospel, and I went to church, and I got saved as a little kid. And I came home, and, I, you know, I, I still remember the whole thing. You know, I, I say amen as soon as the bus doors open, and I run out in slow motion. You know, I mean, this is the way I remember, of course. You know, the chariots of fire is playing behind me. Then, you know, and I run in, and this actually happened. I ran into the front door of where we live, threw open the door, and my mom's there, and I said, Mom, I got saved. And she said, from what? That's, that's, that's a good summary of how I came up. So I'm 13 and my parents split up. And my mom, uh, I had one sister at the time. And my mom says, hey, I'm going to take your sister. And um, you're not coming. It's okay. My dad was living in his car somewhere else. I was kind of stuck. So I went of my own accord to an aunt who, who lived in the neighborhood. I said, hey, can I live with you? And she said, yeah. I spent about two years there toward the end of that time. Um, I found that she had been dealing drugs out of the house. And it kind of, under my nose, become this really drug center of our neighborhood. I had no idea. So I, you know, as a rebellious kid, took matters in my own hands, grabbed everything I could, and I just left. And I went to a friend's house. And his mom felt so sorry for me. She said, hey, you can stay as, as long as you want. So I stayed there for about three months until uh, his dad kind of disagreed with that and said, hey, we can't afford to feed you. So here I am again with nowhere to go. My mom was gone. My dad was gone. No contact. So I know I had an uncle living uh, in the same area. I called him. I said, hey, is there any way to kind of crash under the couch? So while I live in a one-bedroom apartment, you can come crash on the couch. I'm 16 at the time. He says, you can come crash on the couch. You'll get a job and split bills. I said, okay. So I did. I uh, moved in, slept on the couch, got a job at Longtown Silvers, go hush puppies. <laughs> and I'm uh, going to school, playing JV football, trying to just make it work. About a month into that, my uncle just left. 
It was me in a one-bedroom apartment, 16 years old, quit football, 40 hours a week at Long John's, working every weekend, still going to school, and trying to hide the fact that this is my reality. Because the last thing I want is to stand up in the system. I just, in my mind at that time in my life, I thought if I could be the only one in my family to go to college, I'll be okay. My salvation, everything was in the idea of college. And so I lived there for a few months, just handed the landlord cash. The winter came, and I didn't know how to turn the heat on. It's this old gas kind of thing that you had to call the heat company and they'd come out. I had no idea what I'd do. So I came home every night. I put on everything that I had, wrapped up in every blanket in the house, and I just sat on the couch and just tried to endure it. Just tried to pull myself up from the bootstraps. November, uh, right in the middle of November, dark, dark night, long night, I just got down on my face and said, God, I'm not going to make it. There's no way I'm getting out of this. And I, I need you. One of those, like, lofty prayers, right? Just, just throw it out there. I didn't, I got saved when I was eight, but I wasn't discipled. I wasn't mentored. There was no Jesus in my house. I didn't even know how to pray. All I knew was there was a God in heaven that Jesus had saved me. He had given his life on, on, on the cross. And I hadn't lived for that for sure. And in this one moment, I was hoping that he was going to come through for me. And I'm not saying this is normal life. I'm not saying this is how it always happens. I've got maybe a handful of these kind of moments in my life. But the next day, a friend of mine knocks on the door. I open it up. He's like, bro, I don't know what's going on. And I don't know why you're here. But you need to come with me right now. My parents want you to come and move in with us. We're going to take care of that. Let's go. And it took me 30 seconds to get everything I owned in a garbage bag and leave that place and never go back. And that moment was powerful because I saw God just answer a prayer. Just hear me say, this is my need. I'm stuck. Help me. And so around that time, I met the woman who would be the lucky future Mrs. Wright. Right? Now, I'm the lucky Mrs. Wright for sure. And... Uh, I lived with that friend for about a year until her parents, uh, who are the most amazing, godly Christian people I've ever met in my life, they said, listen, we want you to come with us. We want you to stay with us. Uh, my wife has gone off to college. She's a year ahead of me. Uh, we want to get you set up, help you apply for college and do all those things. And long, 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 long story short, uh, graduated my senior year, went to college for free, got a degree, was discipled was mentored by her father who is dad to me. And now we have children who I'm discipling and mentoring. Now God's called me into ministry to, 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 to do this. All of that, I look back on those cold nights in that one bedroom place. I think, Jesus, thank you for those moments. Thank you for those moments. Thank you that I can never, ever, ever take any of this for granted. Ever. I can't even take the hardest moments now for granted because they're nothing compared to that. Thank you, Jesus, for the suffering for yours and for mine. See, the cross is the greatest display of this part of God's character. Where he took perhaps the most unjust and gruesome and senseless thing ever to happen and he used it as payment for sin. For you and for me, God used that hardship to accomplish good. C.S. Lewis says it like this. He says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, and he speaks in our conscience, and he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Don't waste your suffering. 
Don't despise the discipline of the Lord. Hear that merciful voice in that megaphone shouting to you. It's molding you and shaping you, conforming you to the image of His Son. Verse 12. It says, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Begins to encourage His people. So therefore, in light of all that I've said before, in light of the fact that Jesus has already finished the race that you're running, and He stands waiting for you with victory at the finish line, in light of the fact that every hardship you face is the discipline of the Lord who is showing you love, working for your good, conforming you to the image of His Son, in light of all this, He says, lift your hands. Worship Jesus who has saved you. He says, strengthen your knees. Prepare yourselves to endure all the more as things get harder and harder because the gospel stays good through all of that. He says, make straight paths for your feet. Don't look back. Endure your crisis because Jesus endured the cross. Be reminded of the truth. And he says, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. So that this faith of yours, which has been rocked and shaken by unimaginable persecution, will be stronger from this point on. You know, this time of year as we approach Thanksgiving, as we approach Christmas, I feel like it often, there's some things that get overlooked. It's, it's often a confusing one for people. It really is. Because our traditions and our history and our, our culture tells us the holiday season should be a time of joy. And well, it should. Yes, it should. And we'll be right back down here in Heron. Uh, this coming week, enjoying time with family, it will be a time of joy. But the truth is, every year there are more and more people who just dread the hopelessness they feel this time of year. They dread being without the people they used to spend the holidays with, those who have left, those who have passed on. The inevitable awkward conversations and the unwanted bickering, fighting with extended family. Dads feeling inadequate because they don't feel like they can provide enough for their kids during this time of during this time of year. They can't make the big Christmas happen, or they can't afford the big Thanksgiving meal. Right, single folks wishing they had somebody to spend it with. Grandparents facing the inevitable fact that their kids are moving on, creating their own traditions. These are all real issues. As a pastor. As a, a shepherd of the flock, everybody's coming with different baggage, with different things. Everybody's got a different story. I see there's hurt and there's hopelessness this time of year. They're hard things. None of these things, if none of these things accompany your holiday traditions, then hallelujah, awesome. You've got, some, you've got just one more thing to be thankful for this week. My challenge to you, and I think the challenge of Scripture to your heart this morning, you're suffering that right now. You just dragged yourself in here this morning. Yeah, I just got to get there. Endure the cross. Endure the crisis because Jesus has endured the cross. And hear me. Don't endure this this week. Don't endure Thanksgiving. Don't endure all of the social times and, and the holidays. Don't endure that just because you're supposed to. Right? That, that's, that's just legalism and it leaves no room for grace, which you need desperately. Right? Don't endure all of this just to prove someone in your family wrong or to feel like you're better than those who aren't enduring it well. Don't do that. Because that's self-righteousness. And that leaves no room for the glory of God as you endure, which 
He's called us to. Don't endure just to be the example, just to be the strong one in the family. I've got to endure all this to hold it all together. No, listen, Jesus holds it all together. It says it in Colossians. He holds everything together. It doesn't have to be you. You're broken and you're sinful and you're messed up. And that's okay because Jesus puts you back together. Even on Thanksgiving and even on Christmas. Like that happens. Don't be the example. It's going to wear you out. It leaves you no room for your true example, Jesus. It leaves you no room for when someone comes to you on Thanksgiving and says, Man, how are you always so good at these things? You say, No, I'm really not. But Jesus is. Because I can walk into that room on Christmas with all the extended family. I am an, an, an introvert. I don't know if you guessed that. I am. I walk into that big social situation and I'm like, ha, ah, I just clam up inside. But I'm reminding myself, Jesus is good. I don't have to hold this together. He holds it together. So when someone comes and says, hey, man, really good to see you, man. You're just always so happy and positive, these kind of things. I can say, you know what, man, that's actually really hard for me. I come in and I'm nervous. I'm like, I don't know how to talk to people. I don't know who to talk to. Man, God's just giving me strength. Take it to some of our lost family members. That's the most profound gospel they've ever heard. That God's not an idea, He's not a concept, and He's working in the hearts of His people. Endure because the gospel is true. That's why we endure. That's what gospel centered endurance, gospel motivated endurance is because Jesus despised the shame of the cross that he counted it as worthless. He found joy in paying for your sins because he rose from the grave. He sealed the deal. There's nothing that you can face that Jesus, Jesus hasn't already defeated. There's hope for you. Trust in his strength and not in your own. Now, if, you, if, you're here, if you're hearing this and you say, well, I don't really have a faith to endure. Right? You walk in today and maybe it's your first time at the Maybe somebody invited you. Maybe this is your first time walking in and sitting on these chairs. And first of all, say, we're honored that you're here. Right? What a blessing it is for that you would spend a, a Sunday morning here with the good people of, of yours and with me. If you hear that and you say, man, I, I don't really have a faith to endure it. If you couldn't confidently say that God calls you his son or God calls you his daughter because he saved you from your sin by sending his son, that you've repented of your sin, you've turned from all that, and you've turned toward him. If you can't confidently say that, let me just leave you with this. He wants you to. It's not a matter of he'd be okay with you doing that. It's not a matter of, well, you know, God would be cool if you, if you said, hey, I want to be a Christian. No, no, that's not what we're talking about. He desires for you to. He wants you to. He died for you to. That's how serious it is. So if everything I've said is just rung empty for you today, listen, don't let this ring empty for you. Jesus suffered death on a cross like this one. Not to make a point, not just to be an example but to reconcile you back to the God who created you and desires to have fellowship with you. That's the truth to me. I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask that if that last couple minutes was for you. And just find one of the men you've seen on this stage. Even, even more so, if someone invited you, tell them, hey, listen, what he was saying, that's what I want to do. I want to be a Christian today. 
or follow Jesus. Just grab somebody and tell them that. I'm going to pray and we'll continue to worship. Jesus, thank you for your gospel this morning. Lord, I'm thankful that it gives me purpose. I'm thankful that it gives us purpose. Lord, I'm thankful that uh, that it never returns void. That your word never returns void. God, I am incapable of any kind of heart change. I'm incapable of persuasion. But Holy Spirit, we trust that you are mighty to save. That you are worthy of all of the stories that we can tell that can end with because God is good. But for us who know you, God, we leave here strengthening our knees, God, lifting our hands, and thankful for your provision, and thankful that we can endure, though we are broken, in your gospel. And for those who are hearing this who don't know you, Jesus, would you make yourself known to them? Clearly, Holy Spirit, would you move in a way that's undeniable? Would they be brave? Would they have courage? To stand up and say, yes, I want to follow Jesus. To your glory, to our joy. To your name we pray. Amen.